0: Welcome to Christopher Marlowe's Dangerous Letter, Episode 5 of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast where we explore the intricacies surrounding the mysterious disappearance of Christopher Marlowe, the famed Elizabethan playwright. I'm Julian Ng the writer and composer of Kit the Musical, and with me investigating this remarkable tale and the evidence supporting the claim that Marlowe survived is Peter Hodges, playwright, director and author of Marlowe's Complaint. History reports that Marlowe died in a violent brawl over a dinner bill in Deptford on the evening of May 30, 1593. However. There is mounting evidence that his death was faked, and he eluded death in Deptford with the assistance of Queen Elizabeth's secret network of intelligence agents. Welcome back, Peter. Hello, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here again. Peter, in our previous four episodes, we established the background of Marlowe's role as an intelligence operative, Working for Sir Francis Walsingham and the Lord Burley, Queen Elizabeth's Secretary of State. We also determined that Marlowe's chief nemesis at that time was none other than the Earl of Essex, the main rival of Burley's and the leader of his own privately financed intelligence network. We ended with you outlining your reasons for why the Earl of Essex wanted to attack Marlowe. You think it was because Marlowe was attempting to assist Burley to convince the Earl of Southampton to marry his granddaughter, Elizabeth the Vere. If Burley could complete the marriage, he would then gain control of Southampton's vast fortune, one that is more than enough to overpower the Earl of Essex's challenge. All of that seems to me, at least to be quite a plausible summation of the motives for Essex to attack Marlowe. You, however, do not believe that Marlowe died in Deptford that night. Instead, his death was faked to create a convenient cover story with the assistance of three other government spies, Robert Poley, Ingram Fraser, and Nicholas Skears. So we have these four men meeting in a rooming house belonging to Dame Eleanor Bull a cousin of the Lord Burley's, near a Muscovy company wharf on the Thames, also controlled by Burley. You assert that he escaped to Flushing in Flanders. And then, to support this claim, you dropped quite the bombshell by saying that you have found actual letters written by Christopher Marlowe to his personal patron, Thomas Walsingham, after he fled London. That's right. Hmm, that is a very bold claim, to say the least. (laughs) It's the kind of thing that would turn Elizabethan history, not to mention the history of English literature, upside down and inside out. And even if it were true, it would be all but impossible for many people to accept. After 400 years and thousands of scholars digging through every nook and cranny to come out and say, that you have found letters written by Christopher Marlowe after 1593 would be just phenomenal. I think it would be even more significant than Hodgson's discovery of the coroner's report or, or, or the Privy Council letter to the Cambridge Dons in support of Marlowe's graduation, or even the discovery of Marlowe's putative portrait. Don't you agree? Oh, I do. It sounds
1: incredible.
0: But I I think it's true. (laughs) Well, when you first said this, I was really, really shocked. It knocked me for six, in fact. (laughs) However, I've had time to think about this between episodes, and I believe I know what you're really saying. So level with me, Peter. What you are really claiming is that Marlowe wrote Shakespeare's sonnets. Am I right? Oh, Julian, you surprised me. What makes you say that? Well, honestly, it just occurred to me. Am I right?
1: yes, yes, you are. But uh, come on now, how did you figure it out? I've been working on this for
0: decades.
1: You're telling me you
0: guessed it over the weekend? Well, I just thought. I know that Marlowe didn't write any letters. You told us how you spent years looking for them and couldn't find anything. So, So then I thought, what could substitute for letters? What might look like something else but really be a message? Because that's what you were talking about in our last episode. And then it dawned on me that it might be the sonnets. Or or something like that, because if Marlowe survived, then why not the sonnets? So, (laughs) am I right? Do you really think Shakespeare's sonnets were written by Christopher Marlowe? Well,
1: (laughs) well, some of them, for sure. The rival poet sonnets,
0: absolutely. Ah, the infamous rival poet. For our listeners who may not be as familiar as you and I on this topic, maybe you could perhaps explain who that is and what scholars mean when they talk about the rival poet. Okay, okay. So, when we talk about the sonnets,
1: we first need to remember that this collection of poems has been the subject of a, a lot of discussion and disagreement for centuries for a long time most scholars in the 18th and 19th century they thought the sonnets were autobiographical that they were written by Shakespeare about Shakespeare's personal life more recently however the scholarship has turned against this idea and has preferred to think of them in more formalistic terms divorced from biographical content and I think the reason for this is that as more and more research has been done into Shakespeare's life and times, as this has accumulated, the less these same scholars have been able to match it up with the life of the person described in the sonnets.
0: But but not everyone agrees with that, right? I bet there are a lot of people who think they can come up with explanations for all of it. There are a lot of books published on this subject every year.
1: Yeah, but but they can't agree on the main story. I mean, who is the rival poet, just as a for instance?
0: Well, there were a lot of poets. Yes,
1: but this is a very specific poet, as we will see. This group of sonnets that talks about all of this is more or less planted square in the middle of the sequence of 154 sonnets published in 1609. These are numbers 78 to 92. And these are the ones called the rival poet sonnets, because in that sequence, the author complains very angrily about this supposed competitor. And apparently he was very upset because it looked like his patron had found a new favorite. So the scholars have two problems, really. They have to identify both the rival and his patron. Now, the traditionalists who think that Shakespeare wrote the sonnets, they also believe that the Earl of Southampton was his patron. But Southampton never acknowledged any of the poets who dedicated works to him, so there's no way to know if he had any favorites, much less if he switched from one to another.
0: Yeah, but what's the problem with that? I mean, Shakespeare could still be jealous of another poet, regardless of whether Southampton paid him any attention. Okay, that's true.
1: But in the poem in the sonnets 78 to 92, what I call the letter, it goes out of its way to identify this rival. It gives us a lot of very specific clues. In fact, most scholars agree that the most likely poet described by these clues is a man named George Chapman. But Chapman, despite writing dozens of poems and translations, he never dedicated anything to the Earl of Southampton. Chapman's main patron was Sir Thomas Walsingham, who also happened to be Christopher Marlowe's patron. There's no evidence that Shakespeare ever had anything to do with Sir Thomas, never mind his wife, Audrey. Marlowe,
0: on the other hand, had a lot to do with both of them. Yeah, but that's not an issue. Nowadays, a lot of scholars agree that Marlowe and Shakespeare collaborated before 1593 when he supposedly died. Yes,
1: talk about speculation.
0: Well, no, it's scholarly consensus. It is now agreed that Marlowe and Shakespeare collaborated on the Henry VI trilogy sometime in 1592 and 93. So I don't see any reason why Marlowe could not have written some sonnets to Thomas Walsingham, before 1593, which later might have got mixed in with some of Shakespeare's and published together in 1609. Okay, sure. Except the
1: problem with that is that everything in those sonnets that identify Chapman, they all relate to work that Chapman published in 1598, in particular to his additions to Marlowe's unpublished poem, Hero, and Leander. So either Marlowe was alive in 1598 complaining to Thomas Walsingham that Chapman had stolen his unpublished poem, or Shakespeare cared a lot more about Marlowe's unpublished work than anybody ever suspected before or since, so much so that he complained about it as if it belonged to him outright.
0: Whoa! let's back up a little. Exactly what do we know about this poem, Hero and Leander? You, you just said it was unpublished. So why would it be so important? For instance, wouldn't Marlowe be pleased that it was finally being published? If he was alive and well and living in exile, possibly forgotten, wouldn't this kind of memorial be a good thing? You know, like a tribute?
1: Yes, except that it put him in danger. In fact, Hero and Leander was published three times in 1598, but it was only the third that really frightened him. The first version was published by Edmund Blunt, and it included only the part that Marlowe himself had finished, 764 lines. This version was dedicated by Blunt to Sir Thomas Walsingham, and in the dedication, Blunt identified Walsingham as Marlowe's former patron, so that connection is very clear. That's the kind of memorial you're talking about, and I don't think Marlowe was particularly upset by it, except that Blunt said over and over in his dedication that Marlowe was dead. He might not have liked that. Then, a second version was published by a man named Henry Petto. This seems to have been a rush job. The thing is, Marlowe's original sold really well, but it seemed to a lot of people to be unfinished because it was based on an original by a Greek poet named Musaeus. And in the original, Hero and Leander fall in love, and then Leander dies when he tries to swim the hellspont. Marlowe adapted the original, and in his version, the story ends with Hero and Leander's first night of love. Marlowe never gets to the drowning. So a lot of people thought the poem was unfinished. Now, I think that's debatable. i don't I don't think anyone can say whether Marlowe planned to drown Leander. Maybe he had another ending in mind, or maybe he was happy letting the reader imagine their own ending, right? But Peto decided to add six hundred lines to Marlowe's version to include the drowning, and he rushed it into print to make some money. Officially, the stationer's company could fine him for piracy, but if he could sell a few copies, I guess he decided why not. Petto isn't a very good poet, so his version didn't sell very well, and it's mostly ignored now. But the real aggravation for Marlowe came when Chapman published his version, because at that point... It must have looked to Marlowe that Walsingham was thinking of replacing Marlowe with Chapman.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Well, how do you know that? What makes you think that the Chapman version upset him? I think Marlowe was
1: upset because from his perspective, and don't forget, he's living in exile. He's been in something like witness protection for five years. And so he's completely dependent upon Thomas Walsingham. Marlow has been corresponding with him for five years and, and being in exile. He didn't write about current events. The principal purpose of the letters, the correspondence was uh, to keep open the possibility that he could come home and that the sooner that could be accomplished, the better. So initially he wouldn't want to, Uh, reference current events politics or uh, publishing or theater or anything else he would want Thomas to know he was safe he was where Thomas sent him and then he would remind him that he still hoped to come home that was his message and that would sort of change over time when one month became three months which then became a year which then became two and three and four You could expect him to become a little impatient, and even at that, he only expressed his impatience. He didn't talk about anyone else, because to do that, conceivably, it could give away the game. So it really took something very significant, and I would say very threatening, for him to break his silence on current events. And then all of a sudden, he sees this poem appropriated by Chapman. And we know he didn't pre-approve it because he immediately complained about it. So it had to be a surprise. What scared him was the thought that because it was a surprise and because it was dedicated to Thomas's wife, Audrey, Thomas appeared to be publicly moving to drop Marlowe to cut him off, to disown him. So Marlowe did the only thing he could do. He threatened to expose Walsingham. He starts off saying, well, it looks like everybody's using my name to publish their poems. Okay, who is he talking about? Well, he goes through the process of identifying who this person is, which we'll get to, but all of it points to Chapman. And then more seriously, he says, if you, Thomas, if you wanted to complain about me in public, why then I, Christopher Marlowe, I would join you in that effort. Now on the face, that sounds very self-denigrating. I will never turn on you, says Marlowe. Thomas says he's dishonest and corrupt. Why, Marlowe will publicly agree. But Marlowe's supposed to be dead. The last thing Thomas wants is for him to go public. That would put Thomas in danger. So I don't care how you express that sentiment. It's essentially a threat
0: to blow the whole game. So what did Walsingham do? Well, nothing.
1: Nothing at all. Uh, Chapman doesn't go away, but Marlowe stops complaining. Maybe something happened behind the scenes. I'm guessing they went along that way for quite a while. In the long run, I think Marlowe left Flushing, where he seems to have been hiding out most of those five years. But that's another story.
0: Well, speaking of stories, let's go back to Hero and Leander. You said earlier that there were three versions published in 1598. Marlowe's came first, then one from Henry Petto, which apparently wasn't very good or popular. And last came the Chapman version. You're saying Marlowe was afraid that Chapman was going to replace him. In that case, Chapman must have been a pretty good poet. I'm guessing his additions to Hero and Leander must have been as good or better than Marlowe's. Otherwise, Marlowe wouldn't have been so concerned.
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, Chapman was never as good a poet as Marlowe. I mean... Almost no one is. That's not just my opinion. It's the scholarly consensus. And second, Chapman's additions to Hero and Leander were not at all what Marlowe would have done if he had ever intended to do anything like that. Marlowe had been working on Hero and Leander before he left England in 1593. That much is certain. As I've said, it's based on a 300 40-line original by Musaeus, a Greek poet of the 5th century BC. This Musaeus original is considered one of the most beautiful poems in all of Greek literature. It's a tragic tale of doomed love between the most handsome Edelian boy and the most beautiful girl in all Sestos, separated by the raging Hellspont. Marlowe expanded the original to 764 lines and described the beginning of a love affair between Leander, who is a shepherd boy, and Hero, who is a virgin priestess of Venus. In the full story by Musaeus, they have an initial night of love, but Leander has to return to Abydos to tend his flock, which is on the other side of the Hellspump. And then... When he tries to return to Hero after doing his work, he's caught in a storm and drowns. So it ends unhappily. But the story that Marlowe wrote does not include the drowning. Marlowe ends the story with the night of sexual love and the discovery of these two young people, of the feelings they have for each other. Marlowe's interpretation of Hero and Leander is one of great amusement. He's charmed by the young lovers and their situation. Their inexperience and naivete is all highlighted a great deal. So it's a first love poem of these two gentle youths discovering sexual love and its intensity. And of course, he's writing the poem from the perspective of a man of the world who finds it all very entertaining. So if that was his intention, it probably doesn't work for him to turn around and and then drown leander it's it's not his message but when we turn to chapman chapman is quite a different person from marlowe he's not as open minded he's not as amused by sexual love especially when it's out of wedlock so chapman's additions to hero and leander are highly critical of marlowe's poem because chapman's share of the poem is not only twice as long as marlowe's It hammers on the notion that anyone who enjoys premarital sex is doomed. It's really a huge slap in the face. Think about it. If Marlowe was alive, and I'm certain he was, then not only has his work been pirated, it's been pirated by somebody who is highly critical of Marlowe's perspective and writes an addition to Marlowe's poem which deliberately criticizes it. And even worse, the thought that If Marlowe was on the other side of the English Channel, which is comparable to the Hellspot, then Chapman is saying he deserved his exile. And he's saying that to Marlowe's patron, Thomas Walsingham, the man who saved his life. And Thomas printed it with a dedication to his wife. I think Marlowe would have every right to be upset and terrified.
0: Yes, I see what you mean. That that would be quite frightening if Marlowe was actually alive by then.
1: <laughs> well, of course he was.
0: Well, you say that, but I have to say that I'm skeptical. It seems to me that there are several things that you have to establish before you can actually make that case. First of all, you need to give us some proof that the sonnets in question here 78 through 92, as you say, clearly identify George Chapman as the rival poet. Second, you have to demonstrate that the poem at the heart of all this drama is actually Hero and Leander and not some other poem. Those actually, those actually go hand in hand. Yeah, but I think you still have to separate them. George Chapman may be the rival poet, But that does not mean that the author of the sonnets cared enough about his version of Hero and Leander. Because if you can't separate them, then I think you run the risk of making a circular argument, and that will not do. Oh, agreed. Agreed. We'll take them one at a time. Ah, but wait, I'm not done yet. (laughs) Thirdly assuming the latter is talking about george chapman and hero and leander then you have to establish that christopher marlowe wrote it if as you say it was all disguised as a poem how can you now say that you know what it meant and that it was written by Marlowe?
1: well the answer to all of those questions is putting things in context The problem that you have with these letters, being that they're undated and unsigned, and most of them do not refer to events on any kind of date format, you have to work with a context of external events and data points that can be connected to the letter and that the letter indicates are there. Now, there are things inside the letter, as I say, that identify George Chapman. And one could say almost unequivocally. These things have to do with how this rival is described. We get a very detailed description of this person. So the way to think about these data points is to think of them as clues. They are characteristics that this individual and this individual alone satisfies. There are other people who have been hypothesized as being this nameless person in the letter. But when you lay out the specifics of the description provided by the letter and you look to see if any of these other candidates match the clues, you discover that really only George Chapman
0: does that. Uh, I personally think you have a real challenge ahead with the three questions I've set you. You're going to have to argue very convincingly if you want our listeners and I to come on board with your ideas. Fortunately, you will have some time to formulate your answers as our time is up for this episode. If you want to find out whether Peter can establish that the mysterious rival poet of the sonnets is none other than George Chapman, then tune into to our next episode of Hidden in Plain Sight.
1: Those of you who want to jump ahead, you may want to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book this podcast is based on. It's a fun read. I can recommend it, of course, but then I wrote it.